welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Nina Varsava, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Wisconsin-Madison Law School. We will discuss her essay, Precedent on Precedent, which will be published in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review Online. So welcome to the show, Nina. Thanks, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. I love, I love your podcast and... I want to thank you also for producing it because I enjoy it a lot and especially during the pandemic. So thank you. Awesome. Well, I'm so glad you're a listener and I'm really looking forward to having you on the show. I remember meeting you at the ALS event a while back and really enjoying your paper on, on Erie. Mm -hmm. And, and here I got to say this, this is like a really brief essay, but such a fascinating one. And so I'm, I'm really glad you shared it with me and I'm looking forward to talking to you about it. Thank you. To situate listeners in the story that you're telling about precedent in this essay, I wonder if you could just give us a little background on the Ramos v. Louisiana case. In other words, what was it about? And, and more importantly, sort of what does it tell us about the concept of precedent? Or at least what, what do the judges say in the case about the concept of precedent and how they interpret it? Yeah. So nominally, this case is about the Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial. And it addresses whether defendants convicted of serious offenses have a right to unanimous verdicts, specifically in state criminal proceedings. So that's the substantive area of law that it concerns. Uh, And the court is divided 6-3 on that. But the decision is about much more than the criminal procedure issue. It's about precedent, what makes precedent, and when is the court obligated to follow precedent. And on these questions, the justices have very different views. So the Ramos decision reveals just how fractured the court is on on the issue of stare decisis. The justices advance five distinct conceptions of precedent, and no more than three justices agree with any one of these conceptions. But maybe I should say a bit more about the the facts of the case first, so it's more concrete. So the defendant, Evangelista Ramos, was convicted in Louisiana State Court of second-degree murder based on a 10-to-2 jury verdict, so importantly, a non-unanimous verdict. And he was sentenced to life in prison without parole um, as a result. So Ramos then appealed to the Supreme Court, arguing that the Sixth Amendment gives defendants the right to unanimous verdicts in state trials. Was he ultimately successful? And if so, why or why not? Yes, he was successful. So six justices determined that the Sixth Amendment does protect the right to unanimity for defendants um, charged with serious offenses even in state proceedings. So he was successful on, on that ground, and people who care about the criminal procedure issue can basically stop there. But the court ends up talking at length about precedent, and in particular, the precedential value of plurality decisions. So we have um, a decision which altogether is about 100 pages, And a large part of it is a debate about precedent, about whether plurality decisions are precedential and how, and then also about the standards that the court should use when they're considering overruling a past case. 
Well, so my understanding is that like the sort of the elephant in the room in the Ramos case was this prior case, uh, Apodaca v. Oregon. Um, so what was that case about? And more importantly, I think, sort of what was the layout of the opinions in Apodaca and why was that layout relevant to the discussion that the Supreme Court was having in Ramos? Yeah, to understand the debate about precedent in Ramos, it's really important to get the structure and content of Apodaca on the table. So Apodaca was actually, it was two cases, Apodaca v. Oregon and Johnson v. Louisiana, but they raised the same issue and the court decided them together and that was in the early 70s. So I'll just talk about them as if they were one, Apodaca. So Apodaca was essentially a 414 decision. So the four justices, so first, the facts were really similar to the facts in Ramos. It was the same question. There was a non-unanimous jury verdict in a state proceeding, and the question was whether this was constitutional, whether the law allowing for a non-unanimous verdict was constitutional. Same question as in Ramos. Okay, so the Apodaca court split 414, but the four justices in the lead opinion, determining that the Sixth Amendment applies equally in state and federal trials and that it does not give defendants a right to unanimous verdicts in either the state or federal context. So that was four. And then Justice Powell concurred in the result, but wrote separately because he disagreed that defendants don't have a right to unanimous verdicts in federal trials. So Powell wrote that even though defendants have this right in federal trials and the Sixth Amendment is incorporated against the states, the rights it provides against the states are actually different from the rights it provides against the federal government. So that's how we have five justices concluding in Apodaca that a non-unanimous jury verdict in state court is constitutional. So that's the outcome of Apodaca, the non-unanimous verdict stance. Then we have four in the dissent in Apodaca maintaining that the Sixth Amendment provides a right to unanimous verdicts and it applies equally in state and federal court. And so concluding that the non-unanimous verdict at issue was unconstitutional. So overall, we have eight justices thinking that the Sixth Amendment applies equally in state and federal court. And then Juan Powell in the middle saying, no, it applies differently. So he's kind of splitting the difference, but ends up siding on the result with the justices in the lead opinion, because he thinks that it, the Sixth Amendment doesn't give the right to unanimity in state trials. Well, so it's my understanding that the conventional wisdom after Apodaca was that the Powell concurrence was the controlling opinion. Is that sort of consistent with what the court did in Ramos or was something else taking place? Were they accepting that conclusion or is that conclusion now in debate? That conclusion is now in debate. Uh, I'm with you that that was the conventional understanding of the holding from Apodaca, that it was to some extent Justice Powell's view, not everything he said in his opinion, um, but basically his his bottom line, which is that the Sixth Amendment protects the right to unanimity in federal trials, but not in state ones. And many courts had said that. The Supreme Court itself said it in the Tim's case from 2019. They said that the holding from Apodaca is that the Sixth Amendment protects the right to unanimity in federal but not state trials. And I should say a little bit maybe about why one would think that Justice Powell's 
opinion is the controlling one because after all, it was just him who signed on to it. And the reason that you might think that Justice Powell's opinion was controlling is in large part because of another case, which is called Marx versus United States. And this is a case from the 80s that has become pretty well known now. A lot of courts have followed it or at least tried to follow it. And in Marx, the Supreme Court evaluated the precedential effect of another morality decision. And it said that in the event that you have a case without a majority opinion, then the view of the justices who concurred in the judgment on the narrowest grounds can be taken as the holding of the case. So I think, and I think others have assumed that applying Marx to Apodaca generates the result that Justice Powell's narrower view in support of the result is the holding of that case. Yeah. So, I mean, what you described then as like the quote unquote Marxist view <laughs> of of precedent then seems to work well in, or at least reasonably well in the context of Apodaca, although you point to some reasons why it might not necessarily work all that well, depending on how you parse it out in detail. But does it work across the board? I mean, is it always the case that you have the sort of layout between the majority concurrence and dissent that you have in a case like Apodaca? Or can there be circumstances where a kind of Marxist reading of precedent in relation to the layout of a case might not work so cleanly? I think that there are cases that Marx does not apply to. And I think that's the most common view now, that there are at least some cases where there just is no view that concurs in the judgment on the narrowest grounds, because you might have a bunch of different views concurring in the judgment all on different grounds, but none of them are really narrower than the other. I think like, like, as you suggested in Apodaca, that Powell's decision actually can be seen as narrower than the one of the justices in the, in the lead opinion, joining the lead opinion. But there are cases where that just doesn't, where the Marx rule doesn't work, or at least it would be a real stretch to try to apply the Marx rule to those cases. Well, you also suggest in in the essay that depending on your position on how to read a concurring opinion as precedential, you could come away with an astonishingly wide range of interpretations of what the outcome of Apodaca actually is. How does that work? I mean, I, can you walk listeners through how how you could reach such a wide range of potential outcomes from something that seems like it ought to be pretty straightforward? Yes. So potential holdings or potential legal meanings. Yeah. Apodaca and the treatment of Apodaca in Ramos, and I mean, not just in the decision, but also in amicus briefs and the arguments of the parties, this combination of cases shows really nicely the different holdings and sometimes contradictory holdings that can come out of a plurality decision, depending on the method of interpretation or construction that you apply to that decision. So it turns out that one, one common approach to constructing holdings out of plurality decisions is not the Marx approach, but approach that just, it's pretty intuitive, 
It's an approach that looks for majority-endorsed principles or critical propositions from the plurality decision. So we can't look to a single opinion for that in a plurality decision, but it's basically taking this example, this principle from a normal case where you would look for a holding in a majority opinion and applying it to a plurality decision and just saying, okay, we have all these opinions. Let's see what the justices did agree on. And many courts have done this. The Supreme Court has done it itself. Um, so using that method or approach, some commentators suggested that APODACA stands for the proposition that the right to unanimity is protected in federal trials. And because, after all, five justices thought that, so that's a majority view. But another majority view is that the right to unanimity is protected in the exact same way in the federal and state contexts. So that's another majority proposition or principle we could take from that case. Putting those together, those entail that the right to unanimity is protected in state trials. So the petitioner in Ramos can go with that. Likewise, actually in a dissent in the Apodaca decision, Justice Brennan said that Apodaca could be taken to stand for the holding that the Sixth Amendment protects the right to unanimity in state proceedings. That's that's pretty shocking and interesting because the judgment in that case was that a non-unanimous verdict was constitutional. But you can see how he got there by just setting aside the fact that a majority of justices also agreed that the Sixth Amendment does not protect the right to unanimity in state trials. So basically, I draw this out in my paper, and it's a little hard to do just verbally without a visual, but basically there's three, at least, central principles or holdings or propositions you can draw from Apodaca. Each was endorsed by a majority of justices, but they can't be held simultaneously without a logical contradiction. So you can accept any two of them, but if you accept all of them, then you're committing yourself to a contradiction. So as a strategical matter, you can see why people would take advantage of this situation and select the one or two propositions that supports their, their own view. But I think that Apodaca shows the problems and pretty fundamental problems with this majority, um, this approach to constructing a holding of a plurality decision, which just look, it tries to extract majority endorsed propositions. Well, so let's turn back to Ramos then. So when, when the court, I guess, overruled Apodaca in Ramos, was it also kind of overruling Marx or not? Or what happened? And what, like, we, we know what the outcome was, but what does it mean? Yeah, I don't think we know what it means. Um, six, so let's give, let's, Maybe start with the breakdown in Ramos. And the most striking part of the decision for the purposes of precedent is that Justice Gorsuch, together with Breyer and Ginsburg, um, determined that or declared that Apodaca was never a precedent at all. That Apodaca, based on because it was a plurality decision, and because if any justice's view from there is binding, it's the, justice, it's the view of a single justice, um, that that 
decision was just never oppressed and we don't even have to bother overturning it. We don't even have to, have to reckon with it because it's not a precedent at all. So if three justices believe that, um, they reveal that they believe that in Ramos. I hadn't heard anything like that before. So I think this is the first that we hear that three justices take that view of plurality decisions or at least plurality decisions of a certain type. The six other, just, the six other justices rejected that idea. So they all thought that Apodaca was a precedent. Um, so I don't think we can say that Marx is overruled after after this decision, although I think it's it's more confused and more in, more in question. So we have then Kavanaugh and Sotomayor each write separately to say that Apodaca is a precedent, it's binding. We have to either follow it or overturn it. But each of them think for, for different reasons, somewhat overlapping reasons, um, that overruling it is now justified and even required. Then we have three, okay, so I should say also that Kavanaugh and Sotomayor think that Apodoc is a precedent, but they're not too bothered with what Gorsuch and the other justices said about it not being a precedent. They don't really engage in that, in that debate. But then three justices in the dissent are shocked and appalled at Gorsuch's suggestion that a plurality decision like Apodaca is not a precedent and never was. And so they take this on at length in the dissenting opinion. They say that even though Apodaca, uh, that they might not decide Apodaca, um, if they could dis- could consider the issue fresh now, they might not decide it in the same way, but Apodaca is a longstanding and important precedent. And so we need to reckon with that and face the fact that we're overturning it if we decide in a way that contradicts Apodaca. Those three justices in the dissent, which uh, Alito writes the dissent and he's joined by Roberts and Kagan. So they say that actually they would not overrule Apodaca because its its value as as a precedent is really important. And they also bring in Marx and say, what is Justice Gorsuch talking about? Marx said that plurality decisions could be binding and that a minority, the view of a minority of the justices could set uh, precedent. Okay. Okay. So this is something that was like tying knots in my head while I was reading your essay was presumably when it comes to precedent, the precedent in Ramos is Marx. So if we apply Marx to Ramos, what's the holding of Ramos on precedent, and does it overrule Marx? And if it does, how how does that work? Yeah. So, as you suggested, and I agreed with before, I think that a straightforward application of Marx um, to the Apodaca case generates the result that Justice Powell's view, or at least some part of it, is. The binding one. Interestingly and surprisingly, the dissent in Ramos says that, okay, Marx said that the narrowest view is binding. And indeed, that means that a minority of justices, even a single justice, can set precedent. But then the dissent goes further to say that in Apodaca, we, act, we can actually just apply the result as a precedent. And five justices agreed on that result, which was that non-unanimous verdicts in state trials are constitutional. So the dissent 
ends up in a surprising twist, I think, actually rejecting the idea that Justice Powell's position in Apodaca is precedential. And so it seems like the dissent wants to retain Marx, but also um, it wants to reject the idea that Powell's decision or Powell's opinion in Apodaca is is um, precedential. So I think what we can draw from that is that maybe these three justices in the dissent think that as long as there's some principle that the justices joining the lead opinion and a concurring opinion agreed upon, then that will be the binding effect of the decision. But maybe if there isn't, then we actually have to look to a minority view, which would be the narrowest grounds rule. But honestly, I find the dissent on that point pretty confusing because it also cites the Tim case saying that Justice Powell's view from Apodaca is the controlling one. Yeah, but but in addition, I I can't help but wondering, like, is there a quote unquote Marxist concurrence in Ramos or does Marx not really apply to Ramos when it comes to precedent, like the meaning of precedent and how to apply precedent? Like what's like what's like obviously the Sixth Amendment question in Ramos is really important. But as you point out, there's this structural question about how the court is committing itself to think about precedentialness in a bigger picture sense. What what happens when it comes to that? Yeah, so you're taking this another level up and thinking, uh, in Ramos, the justices are fractured over the question of precedent, over several questions about precedent. And then if we apply Marx to the justices' positions about precedent, can we generate any narrowest rule from from uh, Ramos? And it would... I'm not sure if it's given to a Marx to a Marxist interpretation in that way. Um, yeah, because Gorsuch would Gorsuch, Breyer, and Ginsburg would presumably say that no plurality decisions are binding. Well, and then the rest of the justices say that they are binding, but with Sotomayor and Kavanaugh demonstrating their willingness in Ramos to overrule at least a decision like Apodaca, but their, their justification for overruling it didn't have anything to do with the fact that it was a plurality decision. They just thought that it was a bad enough decision that it, that overruling it was just was, would be justified whether it was a plurality decision or not. So I don't know if courts look trying to apply Marx to Ramos could make any sense of it that way. Well, and one of the things I thought was really interesting and amusing about your essay is that in a way you point out that the dissenting opinion in Ramos is binding itself to the outcome in respect to precedent and the meaning of precedent in a way that the majority actually ignoring the precedential value of Apodaca or Justice Powell's opinion in, in Apodaca is not. How does that work? And what, if anything, does that tell us about precedent going forward? Yeah, this is a fascinating part of the decision. <laughs> um, it's it's really interesting. So at the end of the dissent, and Kagan doesn't sign on to this part, so it's Alito and Roberts. 
They stress the importance of following precedent on precedent or precedent about precedent. And they almost dare the justices in the majority to continue dismissing precedent in this way in the future. So Justice Alito says something like, I assume that the majority will be prepared to take this approach to precedent going forward. The irony there is that it's the dissent that really, really cares about precedent. So if the dissent is right in accusing the the justices in the majority for being too ready to to dismiss precedent, we should hardly expect those justices in the majority to care about following Ramos as a precedent on precedent going forward. So the dissent, I think, puts itself into a tricky position there. I don't know if it realized um, the, the irony behind what it was saying. Um, and there's a further irony here, which is that to the extent that Ramos is a precedent on precedent and that it's basically a precedent for the idea that we can easily overturn precedent, that's actually self-undermining. So it gives it actually gives courts room to follow a different approach to precedent in the next case. Because what does it mean for there be to a, for there to be a precedent on precedent, where that underlying precedent says precedent's not not all that important anyway? Um, so Ramos could theoretically be applied to Ramos itself in a later case to justify a departure from the Ramos approach to precedent, because at least in the dissent's view, the majority too easily either dismisses with dismisses the presidential effect of Ramos altogether, or then too, is too willing to overturn it. Though Sotomayor and Kavanaugh acknowledge uh, Apodaca, sorry, that Apodaca is a precedent, but they overturn it without too much issue. Well, so I guess the, the, the question that I, I, I'm wrestling with is like, at the end of the day, is, is Ramos like echoing from the grave, the voice of Justice Brennan in thinking about precedent and what it means? Or is it kind of vindicating Justice Thomas's like totally dismissive approach to precedent? Or is something else entirely going on? I mean, I I guess I want to know what you think. Like, like, what should we make of this? The one justice's view that I left out in this discussion, though I talk about it a bit in the paper, is Justice Thomas's. So he reiterates his position, which we've seen before, that the court is permitted to follow precedent, but it's not bound by it. And Thomas, but constitutional precedent anyway, and Thomas in this case has no trouble just setting aside Apodaca and saying it was wrongly decided because he disagrees with even the the due process approach. And he also says, and I won't follow Ramos going forward, either in that respect, because it's also wrongly decided. So uh, Justice Thomas, I think we already knew, had an outlier view about precedent. And actually, Richard Ray has a paper about called, I think, Precedent as Permission, where he takes seriously this, this idea of Justice Thomas's. So that's worth checking out as well. Um, what was your final question, though, uh, Brian? Well, I mean, I, I guess like, like to the best that you can sort of parse it out, like what do you think the best interpretation of Ramos is? Or like, is there 
a best interpretation or is it is it just is it just confusing I think it's confusing but not only confusing I think that we can learn something from Ramos I think we can definitely learn a lot about the justices views on precedent I think one big thing we learned from Ramos is that at least three justices don't think that plurality decisions are precedential, at least plurality decisions that look like Apodaca. But actually, I think we can infer from what Gorsuch said that he doesn't think that plurality decisions are precedential at all. Um, As you know, there's a lot of important decisions that were plurality decisions. So it will be interesting in the future to see if Gorsuch, Breyer, and Ginsburg continue to hold this view of plurality decisions. As for the other justices, it's not only the dissent, but also Kavanaugh, who stresses the importance of following precedent on precedent. And Kavanaugh goes out of his way to write separately, basically to advance what he calls a roadmap or a methodology for overruling, basically. So he's putting his view of this out, presumably because he hopes to be able to follow this methodology in the future. Um, and then Sotomayor also um, advances sort of a narrower view of overruling, but her her position is narr- more narrowly about criminal procedure cases. And then we have yeah, the dissenters saying we really care about precedent, but then again saying that Ramos changed the stare decisis jurisprudence. So perhaps if they follow Ramos in the future, they will be more inclined to overturn precedent, or at least feel like they have an excuse or justification for doing so, because now they have Ramos to look to and say, look, we overturned precedent pretty easily here, even when there were important reliance interests. So why aren't we doing it now? So I think that there's a lot to be taken from from Ramos because it's so fractured on the precedent issue. It's hard to say how the court will coalesce around these issues, if at all going forward. Nina, thanks so much. This is really fun. I love the paper. It's a great read and very kind of provocative, both substantively and and intellectually. So um, thanks so much. And I encourage listeners to check it out. Thanks a lot for having me, Brian. This was, it was a lot of fun talking with you. Devotion. 
call upon the stars that shine on high And though I am trembling with emotion Cross-examine me I know you'll agree that I've always been faithful Why should we part? Bring in a verdict fair to my heart Gentlemen of the jury Send my lover back to me Order in the court! I said order in the court! Now as judge, I shan't mislead you. I'll tell you the procedure. Just how this case is being tried today. The jurymen are band men, all tried and true and grand men. And now let's hear what Meredith Blake has to say. A hasty word spoken ended our bliss. My heart is broken, but I will say this, gentlemen of the jury. I still treasure his last kiss. If that's how you feel, dear, let's pay our debt. Start a new deal, dear, and let's both forget. Gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a final verdict yet? We believe they rate consideration, and we recommend you send them home for a happy reconciliation. Just as I supposed, the case is now closed. Sweetheart, it's over. They've heard our plea. Now we're in clover and happy we'll be. Gentlemen of the jury, thanks for sending love.